So, Gadara. Gadara. Yeah. I mean, uh, everybody, oh, your friends, Miss. Like, everyone <laughs> puts a gua sound in there. Yeah. Gui, gua. I just say Gadara. People say Guadara, Guadara. Yeah. Almost nobody says it right. I feel like I say my Italian last name like an American would say it. Right, as opposed to Guidara. I'm not trying to make it Italian. I'm an American who has family from Italy. Yeah. Gadara. Look, I'm good calling you by your actual <laughs> name. But I did. I was walking over here with you, and I was like, boy, this guy's my good friend, and I'm not 100% sure about how to pronounce <laughs> his last name. Because, well, because they even on shows about you, they can mispronounce it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the Netflix thing, I think they probably got it right. Actually, I don't, the announcer doesn't say your name. It's just written on the screen. Yes. No, I think I think we we avoided the mispronunciation on that one. Um, hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I am so psyched because it's really fun for me when I get to interview somebody that uh, I hang out with and love in real life. My buddy Will Gadara is just such a person. And uh, Will, Will is uh, the owner-operator of some of the best restaurants in the world. He's a visionary and um, a visionary restaurateur, but more than that, somebody who really uh, makes it a mission to give people an experience of the lifetime at any opportunity that he can. And it's an amazing thing. He's, as his wife who was on here, I called her the Willy Wonka, um, the, like sort of modern Willy Wonka, but in a way you both lay claim to pieces of, of that. And um, so Will, th- thanks for being here. So excited to be here. So dude, we, we met, um, and it's kind of fascinating to, I think, we, we were set up on a blind friend date. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By Peter Meehan. And if Peter Meehan sets you up on a blind friend date, you know it's going to be a good one, I think. I don't know. I hadn't been on a friend date in a very long time. <laughs> a blind friend date probably since I was like um, uh, a kid. But I think he recognized in, um, a certain kinship in the the way in, in which we both look at uh, pursuing that which brings us great joy, which I think has been like a cornerstone for you in your for sure. professional life, right? Yeah. You know, so yeah, I've, I have two things that I, I want to do with, with my career. I want to create the best restaurants I can, and I want to make hospitality cool. And I, I, I use the word cool a lot. I think people uh, don't necessarily attach the most professional vibes to the word cool, but I think it's an important word um, because in our business... Chefs and cooking and food is cool, and service has not really gained that uh, that reputation. But I think that if we can make the creative process of figuring out how to make not only what we're serving people, but the way that we're serving those things to them, cool and creative and imaginative, that's pretty awesome. And so, well, I love the idea of reclaiming the word cool because I think that cool can often come off as an exclusionary thing, but in fact. Your version of cool is inclusionary. Yeah. You want to invite more people in. I've watched the way you try to ensure that diners have what feels like an exclusive experience. But you're in, they don't have to be connected, special. If they're extra nice, you've made nice cool too, right? <laughs> but I mean, that's literally the name of your company is Make It Nice. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, I think in restaurants, we... We talk about the idea that we derive significant and genuine pleasure out of doing nice things for other people. Um, And listen, it's the act of watching them receive what we do 
that makes it so fulfilling. And sure, when there's someone fancy or a big VIP in the restaurant, we want to go over the top to make it really nice for them. But the people that aren't as accustomed to receiving those things are the ones that appreciate them that much more. And so for us, those are the people we actually have the most fun uh, doing cool things for. Yeah, I want to talk more about how you conceive of these special things because I, because I'm, I'm um, you know, we're friends and because of uh, people I've come there with, I've gotten to experience some of this really magical stuff. And it is amazing to me how you've conceived of it. But I, let's go, let's go backwards. Um, what was it in the beginning about restaurants and hospitality that made you so entranced with this world? You know, you are somebody who probably could have been any, and, and you've branched out in other ways now, but what was it about that world that sucked you in? Well, the the beginning of it probably had less to do with the world and more to do with a person, and that was my dad. Yeah. So my dad is my hero. Um, when I was growing up, my my mom, when I was about six, was diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, they, her, the tumor was was malignant, um, which means that it was it had kind of spread out a little bit, and so they removed what they could, um, and then did radiation treatment to kill what was remaining. Um, that was when radiation treatment wasn't as refined, and so the the pending damage over time uh, rendered her to become a quadriplegic by the time mm-hmm. I was like nine. Yeah, my dad was a restaurateur. Um, and I mean, my dad is a, just a full on badass. He, he sounds like me, except his voice is about an octave lower, um, like a Superman. Um, but when my mom got sick, he wasn't only the strong, hard, uh, working Superman, but he also like started becoming like the sensitive, emotive, uh, parent that the mother kind of would play the role of back in the day. When I say it was hard, I, I really mean it. Like in the morning, he'd wake up at 5 a.m. And, and would be exercising his wrist with a sledgehammer, just <laughs> turning a sledgehammer back right. and forth. But he was my hero. You know, he would wake up, get my mom ready, go to work for 14 hours, come home, help me with my homework. And, and what was his restaurant? So he was the president of a company called Restaurant Associates, um, which for those of you who don't know that company, it was founded by a guy named Joe Baum. And it was the restaurant company in America for a long time. Joe Baum opened Windows on the World, the Rainbow Room, the Four Seasons. Um, and I was that kid that just wanted to be like my dad. He could have been a plumber. I would have wanted to be a plumber. And I wanted to spend all the time with him that I could. And so I'd go to work with him every Saturday. Um, I'd work in the kitchens or in the dining rooms. I, I thought I was being helpful then. I think in hindsight, I was probably just pain in the ass. Right. Um, but I wanted to be like him. And so over time, in the pursuit to be like him, I also just started to realize that the thing he did, I actually genuinely loved. When did you start to notice, hey, everybody does things a certain way, but I see an inefficiency here or a missed opportunity here. When when did you start thinking about how you would do it as opposed to, hey, because right there's a lot of people follow their dads into an industry. Yeah. But, and uh, you followed your father into an industry. I mean, you went to Cornell and yes. studied and, and ended up not working for your father. You, from the ground up, worked yes. in restaurants, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, well, first, I think it's important to, to say the moment where I went, it, it transitioned from not just wanting to be like my dad, but actually falling in love with it for Talk myself. Talk about that, yeah. And that was my dad. So uh, he ran a restaurant called Brasserie, 
which was right downstairs from the Four Seasons. Uh, the two restaurants had been owned by the same person. The Four Seasons was sold. And he took me there for the first time. I think I was 12 or something. Um, still an incredible space, by the way. Oh Lobster Club is still a great space. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been to the Lobster Club, but I went to the Brasserie through every iteration. And, you know, back then, like the first sport coat you got was the one from Brooks Brothers with little gold buttons. And we sat down and we had the duck carved table side. And I just remember this feeling that I was in a world set apart from the rest of the world. And one of the things I talk about all the time with my team is that we get to create magical worlds in a world that needs more magic. I think there's nobility in that. And and at that restaurant for the first time, I felt that, that when we walked through the doors, the world outside fell away. And I got really into that idea. Um, and I started working towards becoming a fine dining guy. The problem was, as I got older, I realized that fine dining restaurants weren't fun. I I want to have fun. The amount we work, I need to have fun doing what we do. And um, and slowly over time decided I didn't want to be in fine dining because if I'm going to give all of myself to something, I need it to be fulfilling, not just in a pursuit of excellence, but in the idea that I get to be in an environment that I'm actually happy being a part of. And so I think where it started was, okay, I was working for Danny Meyer. I was running the restaurants at the Museum of Modern Art. And I had one goal, which is I wanted to run Shake Shack. And everyone knew it. Um, and then Danny came to me and he said, hey, we have this restaurant. We have a new chef there. He's amazing. We need a dining room guy. We want it to be like one of the great restaurants in the world. It's called 11 Madison Park. And I said, I don't, no, no, no. I don't want to be fine. Like I want to be at Shake Shack. Uh, but my dad said, hey, if you want to grow with them and you want them to be there when you need them, you need to be there for them when they need you. So I took the job at 11 Madison Park thinking I would be there for one year, after which time I'd go to Shake Shack. Right. Um, I want to pick up in that moment because then you decide what you want to do with 11 Madison Park and it's traumatic and incredible. But what was the first job you had before you were running? To, how did you get to the place where you were running restaurants for Danny Meyer, one of the world's great restaurateurs? Uh -huh. What? Because... Um, it wasn't just like you woke up and you, and you were doing that. I mean, you've told me some of these stories, like we're working with Danielle. And I mean, talk about how you distinguished yourself, what your approach was coming out of Cornell Hotel Management Hospitality School. Well, it started earlier. My dad was super disciplined and intentional. And so he made it, he wanted to make sure that I did every single job all the way up. Um, I think it's one of the things that a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people want to go into restaurants, and now with food, TV, and everything, they think they just, whatever, leave their job as a banker, and then they go and like they're a world-famous restaurateur. Um, I did everything. I was a busboy. I was a host. My first place was Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Uh, then What did you do at Ruth's Chris? I was a host, and I was a busboy. In um, college or after? That was no. That was I was fifteen years old. Okay, good. No, that, I've I've only ever worked in restaurants. So fifteen, you're working as a, a busboy and a host at yeah. Ruth's Chris. Yeah, and every job, by the way, I have things that I've taken away from them. At Ruth's Chris, there was an item. It was this this special fried calamari where the calamari wasn't cut into to rings, but it was cut into strips which is not that groundbreaking, but something that very few people have seen. And it wasn't on the menu. Um, and so if a VIP came into Ruth's Chris, yeah. rather than send them an extra dessert, which 
they could see by looking at the menu cost $12, they would send this calamari, which was by definition, because no one else could order it, priceless. And I remember that. I've taken that with me for the rest you of my You noticed that as a 15-year-old. Oh my God, yeah. The idea that people got something that no one else could get. And it was as simple as creating a menu item and not putting on the menu and reserving it just for people you and wanted to And it made them happy. For. Yeah. It made them happy. It was delicious. I love that you noticed it. So many people wouldn't have noticed it. Well, I was just struck by it. And, and Did now, you write it down or you just told people about it? No, I, I've always journaled. My dad taught me I early want to in life. I this, yeah. Well, he said that when you're a busboy, you have the perspective of a busboy. As soon as you become a waiter, you forever lose the perspective of a busboy. As soon as you become a manager, you forever lose the perspective of a, of a server. And so he always made me journal so that I'd be the most empathetic leader I could be one day because I'd be able to actually go back and read my notes and, and have a greater capacity to connect with where the people I was leading were at in that moment. I mean, that's one of the most fascinating and great things anyone said on the podcast. Like that idea, something I've thought about, that, that idea of, of somehow keeping compact with who you were yeah, as a way to understand the other people's brilliant insight, and that you worked like that, you put rigor into it to do it for yourself. Yeah. You well, keep all we, your journals. Yeah, I have them all still. We when we promote everyone from within, and I think the first six months that a server uh, after they become a manager is the most important six months that we have with them. Because they're learning a ton about how to manage, but they have a superpower that none of the other managers have, which is profound empathy. And after six months, it, it goes away a little bit forever. No matter how much you journal, no matter how much you try to hold on to it, the perspective changes. Because um, your needs change. Yeah, and and you know, the more time you spend in a role, the harder it is to remember how it felt before you were in that role. Well, you're because also you're gaining a greater understanding about a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, and so the. I can understand why and how the particular needs are are different. You know, I I um before I directed a movie, I went back and took acting classes again for a year for the same reason. Yeah. Because I wanted to remember I had acted in college, but I hadn't in a very long 10, 10 years or something. And I was like, well, if I'm gonna talk to actors, I have to remember um the insecurity. I have to remember how vulnerable you feel. And doing it was so valuable. And every time I've acted, it reminded me of how just how impossible their job is. Well, it's like any situation. There's, let's say there's 100 people that work at 11 Madison Park. It means there's 100 different stories happening at once in which a different person is the protagonist of each. And if you can actually put your mind in a place where you're looking at the world through their lens, you're going to be that much better at setting yourself up to succeed in helping them succeed. Well, and it... it well, there's this beautiful moment in the net. What's the Netflix show called? Seven Days Out. Right, Seven Days Out, and the first or second episode is the second episode's about yeah. Eleven Madison Park. I guess the first episode's about the the, the dogs, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I loved this episode of the show, and of course, the moment I loved the most is the moment where that guy was, uh, where you caught out the electrical contractor on his his uh, a mistake that he made, but. What's beautiful about it is this moment where you're sitting at this table and it's clear what's going on. This guy tells you that the the, uh, the restaurant was never wired the way you know that it was wired because you'd been in that place every day for a certain number of years. And I think most people would have freaked. What we see on your face, you making a choice and maybe partially informed by the cameras, but I didn't think it was wholly informed by the cameras. Uh, was it? Was it only because of the cameras? No, 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 no. You made a choice not to humiliate him. And to 
just sort of find the next person and move through and solve the problem. But I saw the temptation. I saw the human moment where you wanted to say to the guy, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> this is my, and yet you didn't. Can you talk about what was going through your head during that and how, because you were the leader and I, I, I really, I felt you guys were trying to sing Impossible, get the restaurant ready in time for its big comeback. And um, everybody's looking at you. Cameras are looking at you. There's a big problem. It would have been great for you to be able to blow off the steam, but somehow you kept it together. Just talk about that. Because you started laughing as soon as I brought it up. Because Well, yeah, no, and and while I was laughing for two reasons. One, thinking back to the situation, and two, laughing uh, in empathy for the listener, because you and I know each other so well that we're going to go all over the place a little bit, but trust in the, the road I'm about to take that it will get back to answering your question. So we have this thing called the Make It Nice Field Manual, where it's like our putting words to all of the philosophies that we use to guide the approach that we take to what we do. And one of the things in there is called DBC, which stands for Deep Breathing Club. Yes. Um, and this is inspired by my my best friend from growing up. We've known each other since preschool. He, for the past 10 years, has run a recording studio in a psychiatric hospital. Um, wow. Which is just awesome on its own. Uh, his whole thing is he wants to make therapy cool. Right. And so he went to this hospital and everyone was talking to the therapist and not actually getting anything off their chest. And it's a lot of inner city kids that go there. Um, and so he set up a little recording studio and found that if he dropped a beat and just got the kids to start freestyling, they were suddenly talking about all the stuff that no one could ever get them to talk about. And he got them to do it easily. So smart. So he, he made it cool to care. He then decided uh, or started to think that they were prescribing way too much medication in the hospital. Um, and it was his profound belief that deep breathing was often the best way to overcome any potential meltdown. And so what he did was he went home, he bought a bunch of shirts from American Apparel, he got a silk screener and just silk screened in block letters DBC. They were cool t-shirts. And set it up where anyone who overcame a potential meltdown five times in a row got a t-shirt. Suddenly all the other kids wanted the t-shirt. And everyone saw uh, these t-shirts and everyone started using deep breathing to overcome their meltdowns. And over a six-month period, the, the incident percentage dropped by like 60%. Um, all that to say that restaurants are about relationships. Restaurants are not altogether that much different from a psychiatric hospital. Right. You know, we're, we're constantly going into service. And what we do is the same, but what we are faced with changes every single day. There, you need to love repetition. You need to, to find pleasure out of repetition to see, see it in our business. But you also need to have a good time reacting to what's thrown at you. Um, and the worst thing that anyone can do in a restaurant is, is lose their cool. And sometimes just taking a deep breath does a couple things. One, it just mellows you out a little bit. But two, it reminds you what you're actually trying to accomplish. In that pause, yeah. you can come back to what do I need to get? What's my objective, yeah. basically? And my objective is not to make myself feel better by making him feel bad about himself. My objective is just to make sure the lights are what they're supposed to be. And there's no good that's going to come out of being mean. Um, Other than feeling better for 10 seconds, maybe, because 
keeping the repressed, getting the repressed, repressed feeling out for a moment, you get the endorphin hit. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I love what I do because I get to make people happy. That doesn't mean that sometimes I am inclined in a moment of uh, frustration or rage to want to make someone else feel not good. But the deep breath reminds you what you're trying to get out of the situation and also reminds you what gets you out of bed in the first place and helps you stay true to that. And so you teach that to your team yeah, yeah. and you actually are able to deploy it yourself. As you say, not always, nobody's perfect. No, no, no. You know, somebody could say, hey, Will once yelled at me. Like, fine, we've all yelled at people, but we all try really hard not to yell at people. Yeah, and yeah. I, anytime I've ever- I'm sure I've had moments of weakness and where I've not been the best version of myself. I do try to. We've all had moments where we're not yeah. the best version of ourselves. I try to apologize when I do. It's important. Yeah, that's, and to mean it yeah. and to change and to from it. Well, because if you are- okay calling yourself out then people will be that much more willing to receive it when you call them out in the end um in that one instance did that guy ever come back to you and say hey sorry i don't think we had that moment uh and not due to any other reason than there there were the so timing. many moving parts and it ended up looking beautiful if anything i feel badly having watched the show that that's how he came off because he did a really good job and he worked hard. Uh, no, at the moment comes off fine because the place in the end looks beautiful and everything works. Yeah. And but I was really taken by your emotional control in that spot because even though you say that about restaurants, I think we've all learned in the past bunch of years that restaurateurs and chefs have kind of been given had been given license to act like uh, enfant terrible, you know, like. Yes. Certainly, Gordon Ramsay, who's a great chef and a world-class restaurateur, made a character out of, uh, a larger-than-life character out of being that way. Mm -hmm. But you find it's not productive. No. I just don't think it's productive to, not only not in restaurants, I can't imagine it's productive anywhere. I, I, I just, listen, I don't think it's possible to be good, like great at what you do, and I'm sure there's examples that prove me wrong here, but my own view is it's hard to be great at what you do unless you're really looking forward to doing it every day. And I just think yes. there's so much more. It's my daughter. Hey, everybody. It's my daughter. Sorry. <laughs> Can you pause this for a second? Hello. We good? I think you should include that. We're back? Yeah, no, we can, yeah. <laughs> Listen, uh, I never have my phone on and nobody calls anymore, but if it's one of my kids, I take the call. That's just the way the world works for me. Um, <clears throat> so you were saying, you don't think it's possibly great unless you love what you do. Though there are some people in my business, filmmakers I've come across, who do love what they do, but the way they define what they love is having the kind of total control Yes, um, that almost reduces people. No, but I mean... Listen, hospitality, this is a Danny Meyer thing. Hospitality is a team sport. It doesn't matter whether I love what I do. I'm not the person that's actually waiting on right. every table. They need to love what they do. And so, yeah, I can love what I do by, and somehow I'm characterizing my love by the fact that I'm a jerk, but I need them to wake up and be excited about coming to work because only then will we actually accomplish. Listen, there's a lot more people coming into our restaurants than I have time to go and actually touch every one of those tables. Um, my goal is to inspire people to be as excited as I am about making other people happy. If I can do that well and then give them the tools to to do it at the level we want to do it, then I'm succeeding. So that's another priceless bit of wisdom you just dropped. And like anyone who manages people, if they can do that, they they will find their day 
and the day of everyone around them. And the thing they're trying to accomplish is just better. Yeah. So like of all the ads, I mean, other advertisers, I love you too. But the truth of the matter is that I have been a New Yorker subscriber for like as long as I can remember. And the reason is because it represents the best writing in America today. Certainly the best magazine writing. I mean, beyond publishing the best writers in the world, the New Yorker holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. Both online and in print, the New Yorker covers a huge range of topics, politics, news, uh, international affairs, climate change, environment, pop culture. Nobody writes about books the way that the New Yorker does. And um, I find that I never read The New Yorker without feeling smarter than I was before I started, more than smarter, more knowledgeable about the world. Uh, they have these incredible contributors like Ronan Farrow, like my pal Helen Rosner, like Hilton Alls. And these are all people who have accomplished an incredible amount and who are given freedom by The New Yorker to write what they want to write in exactly the way that they want to write it. You can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6, plus an exclusive tote. Go to newyorker.com slash moment. Listeners save 50% when they enter moment. Go to newyorker.com slash moment and subscribe to The New Yorker. Now you get 12 weeks for just six bucks plus The New Yorker tote bag, home delivery, the print edition each week, unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day, access to the apps, online archive, crossword puzzle, and more. 12 weeks, six bucks, newyorker.com slash moment. How did you learn to manage your own state? Because many of us, that's one of the hardest battles we have, right? Is to, so breathing is one thing. Were you always like this? Like when you were a kid, were you good? Do you think part of it is you had to deal with this tragedy at home? You had to sort of compartmentalize your emotions when you were a boy and that, uh, because otherwise you would have just been on the floor like bam, having a tantrum every day, right? Yeah. Because this, your mother who you loved was so ill. I mean, listen, I'm not, I think like anyone, I've had seasons where I'm more successful and seasons where I'm less successful. I think that part of the thing that's been helpful for me, and it's something we talk about all the time in the restaurants, I don't think it's possible to do your best work unless you know on your own that your work is important. Um, we talk about it in the restaurants all the time. We talk about the nobility of service, how in restaurants, I, I think especially in fine dining, we get a bad bad rep from time to time because it's expensive. Um, and some people will say that fine dining restaurants are for the rich. That's not true. These days, and it's an experienced generation that we serve really, really rich people and then we serve people who save five months worth of paychecks to come in and eat with us. Um, but what we get to do, we get to help people celebrate some of the most important moments of their lives. We, we also get to give people the grace, even if just for a couple hours to forget about some of the most difficult moments. We, we can inspire people to be better versions of themselves through our attention to detail or, and this is where I get a little preachy, we can make the world a better place just by being really, really, really nice. Everyone that comes through the doors. And that's all true. But what I'm also interested in is how you trained yourself. No, but what I'm about I to say- I want to get to that because yes, that's all true, Will, but I'm, I'm wondering what it is. Many people would have used the difficulty of your youth as an excuse to act poorly. And somehow you took a different message from it. What, how? Well, I mean, my dad is a big part of it. My, my dad has a, a quote he uses all the time that adversity is a terrible thing to waste. 
Um, and that landed for you when you were young. My gosh, he would always say that, listen, everyone's dealt a bad hand from time to time. And you can either feel like a victim and you can get upset that the world isn't fair, or you can look at it and figure out what it is about it that you can learn and how you can use that situation to make you better. And I've noticed that now a part of your life is showing your dad amazing times. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that my, right? I mean, you you make it a point to kind of blow your dad's mind a couple times a year by taking him places, showing him amazing things, doing stuff. How how did that sort of transition begin to happen? And is it as rewarding for you as it seems? Well, okay, the first time. Yeah, it's the most rewarding thing ever. First time? Um, so when I was in college, I was in a class called Guest Chefs. Uh, I went to Cornell, and there, there was this class where different chefs would come up and and you do a dinner um, with them. And the one that I got to work with was Daniel Balud. And he came up um, and I was in charge of marketing, but it was not hard to market a Daniel Balud dinner. In Ithaca. You mean to market the dinner yeah, at college exactly. to the other students? No, to the public, to the local. Got it. Uh, but I mean, that dinner sold out in, in minutes. And so I reinterpreted my role as the person to entertain the chefs. Um, which meant throwing a keg party at my house at 130 College Avenue with a keg of Milwaukee's Best. And long story short, Danielle and I really, really bonded. Um, at one point, we were cooking scrambled eggs with truffles in my kitchen, and the cabinet door fell off. And Danielle was like, Willie, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> um, but he and I bonded, and he invited me to go to the restaurant. Restaurant uh, Danielle, which restaurant was the, Danielle. like arguably the world's greatest restaurant, yeah. then, or certainly in New York. And I was a senior then. And the day after I graduated was the day my mom passed away. Mm. Um, and she lived to see you graduate. She to know you graduated. She lived until twelve hours after I graduated. Right. You could tell it was it was mind over matter. But uh, and then I went to Spain to to work in restaurants in Spain for a while, and my dad took me to the airport, and we decided that I'd fly out of JFK. He lived in Boston at the time. And so we drove from Boston to New York to have dinner at Danielle, and we stayed at a hotel, and the next morning I left. Um, and Danielle uh, sat us in the the chef's table, which is sits in like a skybox overlooking the kitchen. Um, you worked this out as a 21-year-old. Yeah, yeah. For your dad. Yes. Yes. Um, Danielle served us every single course, uh, I think it was like a 15-course meal. We were the last people in the restaurant. Danielle stayed until the very, very end and then gave us a tour of the restaurant. It was the first time in my entire life I was able to give my dad an experience he wouldn't have been able to give himself. Um, and I was only able to give it to him because Danielle was there. And by the way, when you talk about chefs who understand hospitality, there's no one on earth that understands it better than him. But I remember... I mean, listen, we, we talk about how there's there's people who like to give gifts during the holidays and those that like to receive them. And they're both just as selfish because the ones that like to give them, the gift you get is looking at the person receiving them. Uh, and I think that's always been how I've been wired. But to do that with your dad and to look at the expression on his face, the person who is more important to you than anyone, um, now one of the two people, him and my wife, Yes. Uh, I mean, it was an addiction. And I right, wanted and that have, started you wanting to do more I just of that. wanted to do that for the rest of my life. And and did he take it with grace and uh, appreciate it? Well, and he took stuff? it, not only did he take it with grace, but it made him proud to see me do the thing that he had for so long been doing for others. 
That's awesome. Um, now, granted, there was about a seven-year gap when I wasn't making any money, and so I couldn't actually yeah, do that Yeah, you couldn't do much. another one for a long time. <laughs> but now I, I like to do anything I can to make uh, make him happy. Well, yeah, what a great sort of thing yeah. that you're able to do that. And, that. and that, I guess, Daniel was just another example to you of the power of that kind of environment oh to change somebody's... Here I was, like a nothing 21-year-old. Well, whose mother just died. Yeah. We talk about scalable hospitality. I think the coolest gifts you can give people are gifts that they can turn around and give to other people. Um, I they're my favorite gifts. Like the, I call them two step presents, where you're giving someone something that they can turn around and give to someone else, and you're not only giving them a present, but you're giving them the gift of graciousness that they can bestow on well, someone else. Well, you give the best, and I'm. To everyone listening, you, you, this is not something you can have, but you guys, you give the greatest gift every year, which is um, this Advent uh, calendar that uh, you give out um, a couple hundred of them, I guess, yeah, a yeah. year to your friends and to your, I guess, people who are loyal. Regulars, partners, regulars, friends, partners yeah. of the, the, your companies. But it is each day when you open the present it is that it's it's a thing that's for more than the person who gets it because you're showing it to people people are sharing it it's a it's a joy i mean you're bringing this kind of joy but so when you started out was this idea of sharing joy a part of it for you did you grow into that like what was your ambition when you started to do the restaurant stuff in earnest i mean and how did you know chef wasn't the th- like how did you know what the thing was that you wanted to be a part of I always liked to to be the guy throwing the party. Honestly, that's where it started. I probably could have ended up in a bunch of different industries doing the same thing. And it it does go back to my mom. My mom was in a wheelchair. Uh, I went to a school that people commuted to. um, And I didn't have anyone to drive me to other people's houses. And so my dad moved us to a house that was like three blocks from high school. Um, And our house, they had to stay in the bedroom on the ground floor because she was in the wheelchair. And there was a big office that was on the second floor that the people that lived there before used for their business. They ran out of their home, and that became my bedroom. I played the drums, and so we had drums and guitars up there. And basically my house was where everyone hung out just because their parents could drive them to my house. Mine couldn't drive me to theirs. And so I always just loved being the person that had everyone over. Um, and did was. Making friends was easy for you. That that all just came. Yeah, that was e- that was easy for you. Yeah, and being sort of like the center, adding value and all that stuff. I mean, I wonder how much of that is like you didn't want people feeling sorry for your situation, and there was some yeah. I mean, that, that, if in there. I can lay on the couch and we can right. Get into I mean, there must have been some <laughs> some compensating involved, but in a good way, in like a useful way. Yeah, and I. And it was also, you know, what was crazy is, I mean, you know, high school bands—they're not good. Uh, and my mom would always just be by the door when people walked in, so excited for my friends to come over because it meant that she got to be a part of my life. In spite of the fact that she was about to, I mean, I was in a punk band called My Dog Mary, and I can guarantee you it did not sound good downstairs. Right, she had to listen to the, the, the dr- underneath the drums. Listening. It's not a fun place to be, man. No, but I listen, I, I love, I think part of what's made us special as a as a restaurant company is that we've not accepted the fact that creativity in restaurants only exists in the kitchen. We've done our best to uh, embrace and seize upon opportunities to improvise in the dining room the same way chefs have for so long been doing that in the kitchen. And 
I wanted to be in the dining room, not in the kitchen. I, I worked in plenty of kitchens growing up because I wanted to have that empathy, but because I love being the person that can take people on their journey. And I love to be able to think outside of the box and to be fully present when I'm at their table, to really see what they're looking for, listen to what they're saying or not saying, um, and to come up with fun, unique experiences that that they'll never forget. That is the thing that I love most. Well, that's something that, that that's a real innovation of yours, uh, both at EMP and then at Nomad, which is, that there are many excursions that sometimes people yeah. get to go on. There are sort of mind-blowing things that happen that aren't traditionally thought of as fine dining kind of things. Yeah. Right? Um, how did you begin to conceive that? So an example is um, for a, a while, you were doing these Sunday night um, Italian dinners, but then as a special treat sometimes in the restaurant, if your servers notice somebody, there's a nomad, if somebody, if they notice somebody is having a special night, you might say, your next course, we're going to serve you somewhere else. And they look at you like, what do you mean somewhere else? Aren't we at the <laughs> restaurant? And you go, come on, and not you, you've empowered your managers to yeah, do it yeah. and waiters can flag. Isn't it true that a waiter can tell the manager, we should do something nice for this couple? For sure. And then the manager goes, do it, yeah. right? And they'll take him downstairs and suddenly you're in the kitchen and in a Parmesan wheel, you'll make a special pasta for them yeah. with um, a checkerboard tablecloth. And they get to have this respite in the middle of their meal where they feel like they're in Italy having the most special bowl of pasta they've ever had served by a chef. And you don't have to be famous or fancy to get that. No, no, no. You just have to be extra nice or communicate why the night matters to you or appear sad, right? How did, how did that idea start coming to you, Will? Because it is a real innovation. I mean, I think it started with identifying the fact that we can take what we do seriously without taking ourselves too seriously. I, that might not seem like a direct answer to that, but I, I think it's a, it's an important first step because doing carbonara out of a Parmesan wheel over a red checkered tablecloth in the middle of a fine dining restaurant, you need to say, you know what? I don't care. This would be awesome. Right. And if it's awesome, it doesn't matter whether it's a little bit less refined. Um. And then it's just my wife and I, I think the moments where we feel the most connected is when we get to have an adventure. We're, we we yes. live life constantly looking for an adventure together. And if you can create fun little adventures in the middle of a dinner, I, I think that restaurants are not about the food. They're not about the service. They're not about the, the design. I think all three of those things are just ingredients in the recipe that is trying to get people to connect with other people and doing fun stuff with them, giving them memories to hold on to. It's really hard for people to connect with each other right now. It, like, yes. It's hard for people to put their phones down and actually look one another in the eyes and actually engage. And I think the best way is to do something so hilarious and so ridiculous that people forget about all the stuff they have to deal with and can actually engage with Did it happen other. spur of the moment the first time with someone in there and you were like, hey, you know, because you had other things like secret bars and se there's lots of, there are lots of opportunities not not to, blow, like if you're at Nomad, you probably won't get like, but there is a chance, <laughs> like if you're listening to this and you're at Nomad, that you can maybe say, hey, Will said I could get something special, but like, yeah, um, if you listen to this, say, Will said Will's, you have a special experience. You have a special Take experience. Me Take me on a ride. So 
They will take you on a ride. But but here's the thing. Was the first couple times where you just recognized someone you cared about or you thought of and you were like, hey, let's do something fun? Or were you journaling and you thought, I want to come up with a mind blow? Like how did, what's the actual ideation process? Well, so we call all this stuff we, we loosely generalize as a legend. Um, and the first one happened years ago at 11 Madison Park. I was dropping food. It was probably some velouté of cauliflower with black truffles or something. This and is when you guys owned it or when Danny owned it, you think? I think Danny. No, Danny still owned it at okay. this time. And we were serving a table. I forget where they were from. Somewhere in Europe. And it was their last meal before they went to the airport. And they weren't talking to me. They were just talking to one another, uh, celebrating the fact. They were clearly in New York for restaurants. And they'd been to Per Se and French Laundry and Momofuku or, or wherever. And they were they were so happy they'd been to all the restaurants they wanted to go to. But someone was lamenting that they never had a New York City dirty water street hot dog. Wow. Um, they're like, man, we just missed that. Like, feels like we didn't fully do New York. So I ran outside, got a New York City hot dog. We cut it up into perfect little pieces, did a swoosh of mustard and a canela of sauerkraut. And we brought it out in between whatever, their lobster and their duck. And, I mean, everything else in that menu, we had spent of course, so long working on, either the presentation or the production or the, the thought. This was a last-minute thing, and I guarantee you that is the moment in their meal that they remember the most. Did you go and talk to the kitchen before you did it? Yeah, yeah. You no. said, I think we should do this. And, and there was enough trust there. Everyone where, said, let's go try, yeah, yeah. go. Uh, and so you did that, and you noticed it was, like, amazing. And then I was hooked. Wow, that's awesome. And so now there's legends that we do last minute like that, but then there's also ones that we think about in advance. And so what you're referring to is we had this little area when we built a barn. So we put a table out there and a gramophone, a red and white checkered tablecloth and a Chianti bottle with a candle in it. And every once in a while, if someone we thought someone was up for a fun little experience, we'd bring him back there and serve him a plate of spaghetti. We called it Lady in the Tramp Alley. Yeah, and you also had a thing where... Um, there are other there are other adventures like that that you give out, and now you don't even have to be there, right? Do they tell? Do you hear about it when it happens? No, no, no. Now it's just part of what the world is. And honestly, a lot of the stuff that we do, I have nothing to do with. Um, we've simply created the playbook, and we've given people the feeling of having given one of those experiences and got them hooked on it just like I got hooked on it. Right. I think ownership is such an important thing for people to feel. If if the team is involved in determining where we're going, they're that much more likely to help us get there than if they're simply operating out of whatever playbook I give them. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, one thing that I want to make sure to talk about because it's something that I think many of us struggle with is the way in which uh, fear seems to accompany ambition so often and can thwart uh, uh, can thwart our dreams in a way because as soon as the idea surfaces of maybe I could be this, the uh, the counter voice surfaces that says, well, what makes you so special? Yes. Um, and so can you talk through when you had the idea, you turned to your partner, Daniel, and you had the idea, hey, let's let's buy 11 Madison Park. Let's take the risk of doing that. And then let's try to make it the single best. Let's make an, a stated goal to make this the best restaurant in the world, not just by our 
designation, but let's actually win the best restaurant in the world prizes. Because to me, it seems stating that kind of thing and going after it is something most of us are scared of. Most of us are so frightened of failure that we, so we're so scared we're going to crash into the shoals that we won't even set off on our journey. So can you just talk about how that whole idea surfaced for you and how you girded yourself for it? I think there's two two things there. One, I mean, in the beginning, just the fact that it was two of us together, it made it a lot easier. I relate to that clearly with you my know, partnership like, with Dave and I think, professionally. I think when you, it's easier to have audacious goals if if you know that should they fail, you're you're not alone having failed. It's easier to reach for the stars. Um, That's true. I have that at home, and you have it at home, and yeah. also yeah, with the part yeah, you know, you have it with the partner. So, um, but two, there's a quote we use a lot. My dad gave me a, a paperweight with this quote on it when I was a kid. It says, "What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail?" Um, and it's just a fun exercise to ask yourself that question. And oftentimes the answer is something you never try to do because you are too concerned with failure. But if you can surround yourself with enough ambitious or perhaps even audacious people such that whatever the answer to that question is, you just go for it. Yeah. The other quote is from Jay-Z's book, which is, I believe you can talk things into existence. Yes, I um, do too. If If you don't, have the courage to say something out loud, you'll never achieve it. But talk me through how you had the idea or how it came to be that you guys bought the restaurant and then how you set the course that you wanted to yeah. have the best restaurant in the world. Well, okay, so we went to the 50. So, okay, we we started there. We had two stars from the New York Times. Um, and this is you guys are working for Danny Meyer. Working and for Danny Meyer. You recognize, hey, Daniel's a great chef. This is a world-class chef. I'm asking you. Yeah, you recognize yeah. that? Of course. Quickly, you're like, okay, well, I could, this is, if I'm the jockey and that's the horse, I can ride this. Or we're both the jockey. Like, we, yeah. this can work. Yeah, we're each the jockey and we're each the horse. Yes, fine. You're yeah. each the horse and they're each the jockey. But there was a recognition of that, you think. For sure. Right. Yeah, I, I think we recognize one plus one equals three. Not right away. I think at some point over the first year and a half. Of working together, not owning yeah. it. And yeah. so then what happens? Then, uh, so then the opportunity to start Nomad came about and we engaged Danny so you you opened Nomad before you owned Eleven Madison. No, 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 I didn't no, think so. Okay, just, yeah, that was just the opportunity came about, and oh. we said to Danny, "Hey, we want to do Nomad on our own. We want to use that as an opportunity to start our own company. We don't want to leave Eleven Madison Park." And he said, "No, that doesn't really work for me. I can't be partners with you in one restaurant and competitors with you in another restaurant." And he said, "But what if you buy Eleven Madison Park?" which is one of the most amazing things about Danny Meyer, that he looks at the world as an opportunity to support other people. And he also recognized that a restaurant is far bigger than any one or two people in it. Um, and so that set it off. When he said that, I said, yeah. And then we left and realized we had no idea how to buy a restaurant or start right. a company or do any of that stuff. Uh, but it's like most things. I always think about like life's impossible challenges, like uh, skiing down a mountain. Um the hardest part is just putting your poles into the snow and pushing yourself over the edge. Maybe you're going to get bruised on your way down, but a lot of the rest of the stuff you can figure out if you're just brave enough to just do that not altogether too difficult first push. So um, what year was this? This was 2011. 
And so, so you figure out how to do it. So we figured out how to do it. We finally found the money. I had to do a crash course and uh, corporate structure, how to raise money, how to finance with debt. Did you say yes to Nomad at the same time? And then we said yes to Nomad. As you're doing this. So it all happened at the you same time. You had to time. raise all the money for your company right then. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Which you had never done before. I'd never done anything like it. Thank I mean, thank God. I, I, At the same time, someone came into my life who was one of our regulars who just decided to be my Mr. Miyagi and literally taught me everything I knew to do it. And um, so he bought 11 Madison no, no, Park no. with you? Or he no? helped me find investors. Got he it. taught me how to pitch an investment. He taught me how... He taught me what the word ROI meant. Right. He taught me uh, how it's not all equity; it's equity and debt combined. He taught me about how to find HR. He taught me. Does that everything. guy eat in your restaurants for free? Uh, he, we've catered his wedding. He's, okay. he's become uh, good. One of my closest friends. Right. Yeah. So you, um, so you figure that out. You, you, and and at the time, does the idea dawn in you? We're going to make this a four-star restaurant, the best restaurant in the world. Like, how does that get We set? already had four stars at that point. Okay, you had gotten the fourth star. Although, in a perfect storybook way, uh, the day we signed the papers to finish the purchase of the restaurant was the day we got three stars uh, from the Michelin Guide for the first time. Wow. Which is pretty right. cool. Right, amazing. Um, and so then we opened Nomad. And for a while there, we had three stars in Michelin, four stars from the New York Times. Um and then one day we got a letter from the 50 best saying you've been added to the list. And so we went to London uh, where the awards are held. And uh, suddenly we're in a room full of our, our, our heroes. There's Rene Redzepi and Ferran Adria and Thomas Keller. And the way that list works is different from the Oscars or the Emmys. In, in, in all of those award shows, you're praying that they call your name. Right In this, they start at 50 and they work their way down to one. If you're in the room, you know you're on the list. You just don't know where on the list so you you're going to be. So you don't want to hear your name. So you don't want to hear your name for as long as possible. And so uh, they're like, and let's get started. And, and we're trying to figure out where we're going to be on the list based on where we're sitting. And so I think I thought we were going to be number 40 and Daniel thought we would be number 30 or something. They go, kicking it off at number 50, a new entry from New York City, 11 Madison right. Park. And so we're like hunkered down, like we had just gotten hit in the stomach. Like really, so, it felt like a disappointment to you. Well, maybe we we're in the fifty best in the world, but in that room, we were last. Yeah. Now, what we could not have known, based on the fact that it was our first year on the list and we were the first restaurant called, was when they call your name, they train a camera on you and project the image in front of the oh, entire Lord. auditorium. So I look up, realize that I elbow Daniel, and we try to put a smile on our face. Um. We go to the reception afterwards, and Massimo Batora comes up and goes, guys, you look very happy. After uh, <laughs> who won that year? Do you remember? Uh, it was Noma's first year as number one. Right. was that year. Um, and so we Incredible. go- And one of the great meals of my life, yeah, Noma. Unbelievable. Uh, insane. Yeah. Um, we had actually just been there two days earlier, and it was one of the great meals of my life as well. Uh, actually, one of the great experiences. Like, not sure. just me, like the whole thing. They get it as well, Nadine for sure. and Renee are incredible. So- um, we leave, we go back to our hotel, we get a bottle of whiskey, we sit outside, and we say, we're going to be number one on this list one day. And we're going to do it. Everyone's had their impact. Um, Ferran Adria became number one because of molecular gastronomy. Noma became number one because of its focus on locality of ingredients and foraging. And we decided that we were going to become number one, because it wasn't just going to be about the kitchen. It would be about the kitchen and the dining room. It would be prioritizing 
graciousness and deliciousness above all. Um, you figured that out that night as you're drinking and talking all night. Well, we we had to look at what is our superpower, and our superpower was it was two people. It wasn't just the chef; it was the chef and the restaurateur. And if we could really harness that, we could do incredible things. And then, how did you begin disseminating that message, Will? How did you begin enlisting people? Were you, had you convinced yourself that night that it was going to happen? Did it become like a must we, that I night? Mean, and then we talked about it every single day for the next seven years. And we went you, from you did. You mean the two of you, and then and with our your staff? Team. How you call everyone together? A like, week later, we came home from London. We had a whole staff know. meeting, and we said, "Guys, that was a great accomplishment. We're in the top fifty, but for us, that was really, really hard. And we have a new goal. We're going to be number one on that list." And it may take us a while, but we're going to get there. And again, it's hard to say that, especially it's hard enough to name your most audacious goals because you're scared to let yourself down. It becomes unbelievably harder when there's a fear that you could let your staff down. These are people that need to look to you for mentorship and guidance. And if you give them a goal and then have an inability to help them achieve it, you failed as a leader. Yes, but you. how did you know you could pull it off? Well, we didn't, but right. we knew that if we didn't start saying it out loud, there was no chance that we would. Yes, I so believe, right, the Jay-Z quote, yes. but I so believe by stating it, you've dared yourself. Maybe we wouldn't, and maybe we would have failed, but it's better to try and fail than to never have tried well, no, at but all, you. Right? So like you that. say you're doing it, and then do you say it publicly too, beyond just to the... No, I, I think that's that's where you need to be careful. Um, just because there's a lot of haters out there, and you need to you need to like hold your cards a little bit close to your chest. But you need to say it out loud to everyone that has an important role in helping you achieve it. And in restaurants, that's every single person on the team. And so, how conscious were you of raising your game every day? Was it a did, did, did were you able to transfer ownership of that idea to everybody? Were you talking to everybody oh, yeah. about it all the time? Yeah, and then we have strategic planning every year where everyone gets together and comes up with ideas. Did you have to look at the ways in which you weren't the best in the world? Did you have to accept, hey, we really aren't, we may not be 50th, like we reject that idea, but here's why I know we're not for number sure. one. Like, did you learn something at Noma, for instance? Yeah, well, I mean, even though Noma's incredibly, did you learn something about why Noma, did it make sense to you that Noma was number one in that moment? I think what we learned most of all from Noma, um, you know, it, it's even hard. Bear with me for a moment. When you go, uh, when you go on vacation, it's almost impossible to bring back a souvenir for your family because everything you can buy there, you can buy here. Yes. Um, the thing about Noma, which opened my eyes, was the fact that it was an experience that wouldn't have made sense anywhere else in the world, but there. Yeah. Um, and so we, we we really channeled that to begin with. The specificity that it was itself in an incredibly pure way. Yeah. Which is the uh, great art and, and great places have that sense. They have a terroir of, of their own. Totally. Way, where it's the, the, it could only be this thing. And at first we leaned heavily into New York. Oh, um, right. But that was a stopgap. That wasn't ultimately... What we needed to lean into I, was not New York, but into us, into this deliciousness and graciousness thing and like the the theatricality of service and the celebration of hospitality. And um, really what Noma did that was amazing is 
they said fuck it to the rules in the sense that they stopped doing caviar and black truffles. And we needed to do the same thing in our own way. Um, you need to create a, you created an environment that was, I mean, the thing, you know, some fine dining for a long time, part of the recipe for success, I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, was actually to make the diner feel inferior. Like yeah. the diner didn't know, the diner was not a sophisticate. And when you come in here, we're going to show you the way sophisticated people live and eat. You can feel important and special. While we make you feel smaller, you can leave and feel bigger. Um, but you guys, and you're not the only ones who flipped it, but you were part of deciding, no, we're not going to hold ourselves out as better. We're going to, in fact, all be lifted up together. Well, and that fine dining can be casual and fun and engaging. Um and that no matter what the rules were, there was no idea that didn't make sense if it wasn't right for what we were trying to accomplish. I mean, one of the things that I think really helped to put us on the map is I was playing cribbage one day. You know, cribbage, the card game, and it's got the board. And we're like, why can't you play a game in the middle of a, a tasting menu? Um, and so we got a deck of cards made, and that ended up being a magic trick that happened in the middle of the meal. Or... Um, I was at the dentist's office and I saw this kid next to me playing uh, one of those things where you draw the lines to connect the images on one side with the words on the other side. And so uh, we did a game where there were four different types of milk chocolate and people did like a taste awesome. test to figure out which one was which on these little cards. Um, and how much time were you spending then when you were trying to be number one? Were you there every day? Well, yeah. I mean, Nomad and Love Madison Park are just a few blocks away in my apartment you know, is right in between the two. And so, um, yeah, every day. Every day they're trying to make this dream a reality. When it happened, had you felt you'd earned it before it happened? Like the year before, were you... We felt did like you have we a couple disappointing there, years? For sure. I want to say one more thing. Please. Not only was I there every day, I think more importantly, and this is true for me and Daniel and, and all of us, we were looking at the world with open eyes to find inspiration from wherever we could. Because if you find inspiration from other places and bring it back into your world, that's when you actually start to change the game a little bit. Um, I went to see Rocky the musical, where at one point in the show, they get the entire front of the audience up move them into the aisles, push the stage out over where they were sitting and bring the audience up onto the stage so that they can create a boxing ring in the middle of the audience, which was just... Amazing. Someone yeah. at one in one meeting had that idea and was surrounded by enough optimistic people where they were like, that's insane. No one said that's insane. And they actually did it. it was, Everyone did it. It was yeah. insane. And that inspired us to start taking people into the kitchen for a course in the middle of their meal. Um, and so... It, you know, it's not about just being at work all the time. I think that to really succeed at anything, you need to find balance between being fully immersed in what you're doing and also being out in the world enough to bring home enough inspiration to affect what you're doing. I mean, that doesn't sound like balance to me. It sounds like an obsession. It sounds like you have to <laughs> it sounds like you're completely just obsessed all the time, whether you're there or you're not there. But there's some obsessives in our business that believe that they need to be in the restaurant all the time. And I think that's that can be a mistake. Right, um, that you need to go, well, sure, You you if you're an artist too, you need to do the work, and then you need to refill somehow. Yeah, you can't just be in front of your 
I have to go to the museum. I have to go to the museum. You need to get out. No, I have to go to the museum. Yeah, exactly. I have to walk around. And everyone, we, we it's and not just the museum. I have to go watch movies, and I have to go watch pro wrestling. I have to watch every kind of storytelling, every kind of art. I have to read everything yes. and listen to all sorts of music, and I have to do that for its own pure thing, actually. And then hope that it sifts through totally. and starts to make sense in a new way, which is what happens for you, right? You need your oxygen. You yeah. need to fit like what it's like the oxygen mask on a plane. Um, you need to help yourself before you help the kid. You need to figure out what it is that fuels you so that you can continue fueling the people around you and whatever it is you're doing. But well, yeah, so we were number 50. We went to 24. We went to 10, 7, 5, 3, or 2. And the, we went up every single year except the second to last year we fell down. Um, and that was hard because a lot of those things are about momentum and the moment you lose sure. momentum it's like oh my gosh so what'd you do how did you deal with that Will we just leaned in even harder Um, again adversity is a terrible thing to waste so you then went back and you said to everyone okay now it's the time like, this guys, is the push like we can't fall down again if we fall down two years in a row it's we're over. probably not coming back so what did it feel like when you were there? I've seen the picture. I talked to you the next day, but what did it feel like when it happened? I mean, it was everything. It was just this moment where, I mean, I'll be honest. I think anytime you give yourself a goal that takes close to a decade yes. to achieve, there's the immediate, unbelievable elation and celebration and well, all of it. And then immediately following that is is kind of a little bit of a difficult time. Emptiness. Yeah. Um, I mean, you did the summer thing. You did great things out of it. Well, and the way we decided to react to that was to come home and close the restaurant and gut it and start all over again. Well, that's great because this takes us to where people can go watch that show on Netflix because that's where it picks up. It yeah. picks up after you guys have won. You're about to close the restaurant to open it again. Um, well, man, you're such an inspiration to me. It's so fun being your friend because we get to have these conversations yeah, off mic likewise, too. Likewise. And uh, congratulations on all of it. And um, what are you really excited about that's going on right now? You've just opened in Las Vegas. A yeah, nomad we, we opened a nomad in Vegas. We have opened a nomad in Los Angeles. Um, and I'm so proud of Nomad because when I think about, we wanted to make fine dining more accessible at 11 Madison Park, but Nomad is really where we have the opportunity to make fine dining more accessible. People often ask me my favorite places to eat in the city. I mean, I get asked it constantly. My standard answer has always been Mamafuku because to me, Dave yeah. changed the way you eat in New York. And uh, I think what, what he did is mind boggling. But I I also always say Nomad and and... It's, I'll say people sometimes are a little intimidated by it. It seems like it's going to, because it is you guys yes. from 11 Madison Park. Um, but I've never sent anyone a Nomad who hasn't come out of that restaurant saying they had one of the great times. Thank you. And it's not like EMP in that it's not, um, it's not an impossible night. It's, you can go to Nomad. You can tell them, I have an hour. You can get a reservation. They're also incredibly nice. Like, even if they're not a reservation, if you... Go in there and you say, here's why it's really important to take my totally. boyfriend or girlfriend. They'll figure it out for you. And you will have a, a, a very special, beautiful, fun night. Magical. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I want Nomad to be the kind of place where you can go whenever you want. And we can be a lot of things to a lot of people, depending on where you're at. But you asked what I'm excited about. You know, I'm 39 years old. 
I turn 40 this year. Um, I don't know how many chapters I've had in my life leading up to right now, um, but I'm pretty blessed. They've been really good chapters, and I just could not be more excited for the one that's 40 to 50 is going to be as someone who's on the other side of it now 40 to 50 is going to be great for you man and uh are you planning the 40th already is there going to be something fun you know i haven't gotten into that yet dude (laughs) we're about to go have uh lunch with our wives and i now know this is going to be a topic of conversation hey everybody you can find will are you on twitter uh are you on instagram you're active on instagram what's your name on instagram w gadara g-u-i-d-a-r-a so go uh Follow Will on Instagram. If you want to find me, I'm on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. Don't send me any scripts or treatments or ideas because I uh, will, not only will I not uh, read them, but the next special event at Nomad will be people get to rip them into tiny little shreds while they're eating carbonara. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks. See you next time. (laughs) Bye.